G'day everyone and welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker. This podcast is brought to you by Rafa, our title sponsor this season. We've got a cracking episode coming up. Luke Durbridge in the middle of the classics has put time aside to talk about the classics the day after Tour of Flanders. He's beaten up, he's tired. I got him out of bed. I said, Derbs, let's record an episode. Tell me what it's like. I want to hear the nitty gritty stuff. We get into it. We've got some questions. But before we get into that, I want to take the opportunity to pay tribute to a great loss of Richard Moore, an iconic man from the cycling journalism, the cycling podcast, of course. I was honored to be able to spend that time with him that I had last year on the Tour de France as a journo. He took me under his wing. We had a great time drinking too many wines, having too many laughs, going on rides and doing, yes, a little bit of journalism on the side. I'm certainly going to miss hearing his voice on the podcast, but also working with him and seeing his face. I know a lot of people out there are going to agree with me. A very, very big loss. Onto this podcast, a podcast that I know Rich would really enjoy because he did love the classics. Luke Durbridge is talking with me about it. Like I said, some questions in from the audience. We're talking about what it was really like out there on the Tour of Flanders, plus the classics and the build-up. Guys, I'm not going to intro this anymore because it's all self-explanatory once you get into it. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, Durbo, here we are, mate. We're back on the podcast, mate. Welcome back to Life in the Peloton. Thanks, mate. It's the first time I've had to do it over Zoom, isn't it? Did you move back to the other side of the world? No, I think we did. I think we randomly did this 2.0 talking luft because you're up at the classics and I wasn't up there last year. Oh, yeah, true. Because I remember. True, true. I was at the level event, yeah. I remember your teammate was there and you're like, um, Luca Mezjek. You're like, who's my worst, worst roommate? You're pointing to your teammate. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Meza. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm up there again with Meza, so can't be that bad. <laughs> Well, mate, we're right in the middle of the classics. You just finished Ronde van Flanderen yesterday. Um, you look a bit worse for wear. Uh, you were just telling me about the horrific travel back, something that we didn't really love about going up to Belgium, um, that sort of the – it's almost a red eye. Um, it just you, – you finish the classic, you jump on a flight. Let, I'll let you tell the story because we just sort of finished telling the story. Tell us about the travel – at the end of Tour of Flanders, because I guess everyone doesn't really know what happens at the end of a race, at the end of the, a classic anyway, specifically this one, because there's a bit of a gap until, you know, Amstel Gold Race and then Paris Bay's two weeks away. Tell me what happened when you crossed the line yesterday. <laughs> Run me through a play-by-play, actually. It is. It seems ridiculous that professional sport, like we spend all this money on one percenters and training camps and nutrition and, you know, you know, good health and all this sort of stuff, protocols for COVID and you stop getting sick and all this sort of stuff. And there's a really important period. But straight after a race, one of probably the hardest race like you do on the peloton, on the, on the calendar. And um, you get to the bus. So I come in and grab a Fanta, get to the bus. The staff member's waiting outside with your suitcase in the car, just like tapping his wristwatch, like, come on, we better go, we better go, get that shower, better go. Like, it's 4.30, we finish, and my flight's not until 10 o'clock, but for some reason, you know, there's <laughs> always there's always traffic on the ring road, you know? Like, Brussels is like, 
that ring road, oh, you never know, will be stopped for hours. You know, there was no traffic yesterday like there always is a Sunday afternoon. Which is true. It can it can be horrendous on that road. It can be, but on a Monday morning maybe. But like, yeah. you know, there's no traffic. Anyway, so they're stressing about that. So I came in and I'm cross-eyed, you know, at this point. I hung the flattered after the Pattersburg on the last time, had about 12K to get back. And I was probably the last group on the road. But, you know, it's special to finish those races. And um, I did my job and into the Quarmont the second time and then pretty much just limped home from there. And uh, But it's always, I always find those races that, I think you taught me that as well, was that it's always special to finish them, even mm. though you feel like it's so easy not to. Like you can do the first time Pattersburg and just go 10K back to the bus and you're done. And I could have easily done that. A lot of guys did. Because I, let me... Yeah, interlude there because it is actually, people might be thinking like, yeah, but you came there to race the race. You got to understand that all the riders have different jobs in the race and different finish lines, virtual finish lines. You know, I don't know exactly what your job was that day, but, you know, for instance, for me, it might have been at the bottom of the Quarimont second time, that's your finish line. And you do empty the tank to that point that potentially you have nothing left to get to the finish. So... To fathom actually getting around another 50k on like a really epic parkour or 40k, whatever it is, you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And you get back to the bus and the team can be very happy with your job. So there is no qualms about you riding to the to the, mm. to the the bus at that point. So it is a mental game. But anyway, what were you saying? Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, pretty much I'd say half the bunch is goals to get to second time Quaramont to put their leader into position. And as mm. you saw from the race... There really is not many guys racing after that point, and it's still so, still so far to go. Um, and whoever gets back on and at the Koppenberg after being dropped in the Quarimont, they're not really in the race anymore anyway. They might get to the back of the peloton on the Koppenberg, but they're just getting blown straight out the back after that anyway. So <laughs> get about the bottom of the Koppenberg, yeah. and they're like, "Oh, thank God, I'm yeah. back. I'll just ride around the outside of all the good guys now <laughs> up the Koppenberg and get a good position." Oh no, no. So yeah, pretty much. My job yesterday was to do first time, uh, second time, quite a lot. Um, my condition hasn't been the best up, well, hasn't been the best it's ever been up in um, Belgium. So my role's been dialing it back a little bit earlier. Um, but, you know, I've been, if you think about my role compared to Michael Matthews' role, who was our leader, um, into that same hour prior to the second time, quite lot, I'm doing. 100 to 150 watts more because mm. I'm pushing wind to get him into that position. So, of course, when you get to the bottom of the Quaramont, that's your goal to make sure that he's saving as much energy as possible um, so that he can continue on for another 40K uh, to the finish and, and hopefully get a good result. So, yeah, I, I did my turn into the Quaramont as hard as I could um, and then completely empty, you turn right and then you start the Quaramont. <laughs> And then you, you're just copying every stone all the way to the top. But I think that's when you sort of last uh, last sort of couple of years, since we missed out, we can go back to that later. We talk about COVID and, and not having fans and things like that. Mm. You miss that feeling, that crowd. Um, yeah. And my goal was to finish after that because you missed the last two years without that special crowd. And it doesn't matter how slow you go. What else do you actually have to do for the day? You know, you've eaten about a million calories before the day. You've worked really hard to be in this situation. And there will come a time where you don't rock up for the Ronde van Lunder. And as you know, 
And I bet you were sort of getting this little feeling like, oh, it would be cool to be roughing up the Quarmot with about, you know, thousands of people on the side of the road smell of beer and smoke and people yelling and, you know, that's that's a that's a feeling that you won't get. So I was like, okay, well, I better soak that up and finish. So, But the, the problem is you start to forget to eat because you're not racing anymore. You're just <laughs> like, I'll just start riding. So by the time I got to about 15K to go, the lights went completely out. So then I'll get back to my other story as, we, as I've crossed the finish line. You know, the, the staff sort of think you've cruised in now because you got dropped. So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, all good. And I'm like, give me a fanner, give me a fanner. Like, Are you okay? I'm like, I just did finders, man. Like, I know I didn't race for the final, but it doesn't mean I'm not completely ruined. Seven hours, it was quite long this year too because they added an extra little loop there. So it was 285K, but he's seven hours long. It's going up. Right. I, I heard 270 yeah. something. Is it 285? With neutral, yeah, 285 yeah. with neutral. So it's 10K neutral now, so it's quite wrong. Um, anyway, got a Fanta, back to the bus, sitting on the bus, just want to have a moment, you know, and everyone's sitting there, showered up, ready to go to the airport, and you're <laughs> just sitting there like, oh, so you have a, have a sandwich, you get in the shower, and then it's just like logistics, like, Where's the suitcase going? Where's your next race? Where's your helmet's going to go? Where's your rain bag's going to go? Which car are you going to go to the airport? Do you have your boarding passes? <laughs> like, And then we're going to do a quick debrief. So we did a quick debrief about the race. And then we all just like, everyone just fled. So some guys go to this airport, Charleroi, which is another airport in Belgium. And you go to Zavagen, which is the other one in, in, uh, in Brussels. The main airport, yep. Main airport. And then you just flee. And it's just crazy to think that you've just done the hardest day in your life, not in your life, like on your, on the bike, and then you jump in a car, you cramped up, you go to the airport, you sit there for three hours at the airport, then you get on the plane, you land in Barcelona at 1 a.m. in the morning, and then you get in a taxi to go to Girona and you might get in at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. Like, that is, it sounds like stupid. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's, you know, like, it's ridiculous. I, I, I woke up being like, I've had a headache all day. Like, you can see my eyes. They're barely open, you know? And- you, you woke up to my text message. Mate, you ready to do that podcast? <laughs> I've had about six coffees to get to this point. And, um, but yeah, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And this is why we stayed in Belgium, because mm. this feeling was not good for the following races. No. The only reason I did opt to not, which I haven't come home in years. I've always stayed Sunday night and rested up. But it's because I've got more time until Roubaix. I've got the week at home. The weather's turning pretty bad in Belgium this week. So sun at home, I can do some good training. So sure, I'm, I'm a bit ruined now, but I'll have four or five days to really recoup mentally as well to get back um, back up there and ready to hit these classics. And I think that's one of the biggest things you need to be on to keeping your mind sort of fresh into these races because it's probably a month and a half um, mm. in total up there. And if you're in the hotel every day, laying on your bed, you know, three days in between every race, you know how that is. It just it just wears you down. Well, let's talk about from the start of the classics. I want to start run through them all here because you started with San Remo. Um, take me back to San Remo. It was actually quite a nice day, not common for San Remo. Can you remember it? You, Bike Exchange, speak about more specifically your team in this podcast. Michael Matthews was fourth. And a bit of a sort of, let's say, last 12 months, starting to this year, 
pressure was starting to build with the team. Um, I really feel like, and especially with Michael anyway, he hadn't really performed, I didn't think, for the last 12 months. Um, and now with San Remo, you just sort of started to get the ball rolling. Was it good to be back in San Remo for you? What, what was the feeling yeah, there? Um, I, I, I often have opted not to do San Remo um, because the classic's coming up. Uh, it's not have, hasn't been my favourite race, um, just because, like you said, the weather's pretty bad, and you've done a lot of preparation. And it's, San Remo is not a race where I can maybe go for my own opportunities because uh, it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't suit me. They just go way too fast those last two climbs. So I've always sort of saved up those bullets to go to um, go to Belgium and race three days that Apana was on or Dwarsdorf Vlander and used to be earlier, so we used to be able to race that. Uh, and a lot of guys would do San Remo and miss Dwarsdorf Lander. And so you'd actually, you'd eliminate a few of the favourites for the classics up there, which would give you a chance to try and get a, you know, get a result and perform and things like that. Um, but now Dwarsdorf has moved. And, um, and then I started to, over the last probably two years, I started to realise how special San Remo really is. And it is a, it is a, it yeah. is a pretty incredible race. You know, like, for what it is, it's the first classics of the year, um, and with someone so motivated, Michael, well, Michael's always g uh, yeah. for the for San Remo, and you can really see that he wants to win it. And I'd really like to be a part of that, mm. and I'd really like to be there and to try and guide him into positioning a bottom at Chapresa or Poggio, and when he goes on and actually finally wins that bike race, and I think that was something that I started to get motivated for the last couple of years. Whitey rang me up, the rector, and said, you know, we really need you there to, to be able to do this. And so I've, I've, been, I've been getting around it. Yeah, I'm starting to learn it. I Actually, it's funny. I didn't really do it for most of my career, but last three years I've done it, and I really started to get the hang of the race. And we had such a beautiful day. Uh, it was sunny. We had tailwind. Um, and, look, the team rode really well for Michael into the Chapressa. They just went uh, – they went the fastest they've ever been up the Chapresa yeah. in the last modern era. So um, the year before I got over. But yeah. yeah, Tell me about that because I want to go back to the start of the season, actually. It's something I wanted to speak about before San Remo. I forgot because something that you it pointed out to me, and I tell you, what, I can't tell now anymore on TV. I'm one of those guys. You look at the race. Oh, yeah, it looks pretty good. Yeah. Oh, and you see like the really fast stuff. Like you can see Chapresa, but you don't actually notice – the whole day has been fast. Like for me, Flanders just looks sort of pretty hard at the end. But I don't, I can't really see and feel the tension of the bunch. You know, you can. So tell me about the start of the season, more specifically Paris-Nice. Paris-Nice was one of my favorite races, a real a real grimy race, hard race. You know, it's, it's earmarked as the hardest race in the calendar year, I reckon, stage race. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I but do a, yeah, it's horrible. I think I think it sets you up for the classics because it's so hard that you sort of take a step down for the classics. You're like, oh, finally I can do these classics, something easy. <laughs> Tell me about what you're thinking about the peloton now. <laughs> um, is it going faster? Like, Derbs, have I made the right decision to get the hell out of there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, I'm in two minds. Either I'm getting old or it's getting faster. So... Um, it's definitely uh, I would say it's 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 definitely overall more more cutthroat in terms of more stressful from earlier on. Mm. Um, 
finals used to start 50k out in some of the big 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 races um but it is getting more stressful i, I would say like inter of we, we go forward but inter of flanders i used to stop for a piss on the kotakia sometimes yeah and that is like three or four climbs before second time climb you know and it was a good moment because it was a big road afterwards you could come back and you could chill there is no way in hell I'm stopping for a piss. I'll, I'll never, I'll never see the front of the bike race again. Like, there is no way. So I'm talking the first cobble section, which is the Lipoven Strat going mm. into the Pater Strat, as the first flat cobbles of the Tour of Flanders. That was a full-on running, proper. Really? You know, like, and you can you can choose to play the game or you don't have to play the game. And what I mean by that, like, some leaders take the risk of not using the energy and just sitting back in the peloton. But there may be a crash and they may be caught behind it. Or they put their team on the front and butcher them <laughs> into yeah. that sector to make sure that they are safe for as long as possible. So, you know, I was boxing on with Pogachar into the first cobble section, like trying to get one wheel in front. And this guy's going on to win the bike race. Oh, not win, but nearly win. And um, You're just one of the pawns yeah. who are getting burnt and you're next to him. You're like, mate. I don't care how long I have to hold you in the wind. I'm just a pawn. Yeah, I'm just I'm a <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> but it's true, though. It's <laughs> I'm just next to this king or queen, whatever you want to call him, and uh, this little pawn's just getting in the way. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, yeah, I know, it's, I different, know it's different if Michael Matthews and him are just fighting in the wind. You're like, you know what? Both people are using energy. But, like, when one of the pawns are up there, you're like, Go for it, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy so it, to it, think that. It is crazy. And it's hard. To, I think what you could say is well, on the television, if it if the peloton is bunched up, it is super hard. Mm. If the peloton is single file and no one's worried, it's easy. So it's That's so weird. Mindset. It's the opposite what it used to be. It's the opposite. So if it's strung out, sure, there's these moments where it's strung out and it's going super fast because the road is small. That's like you can't. But if it's a big road and it's strung out, it's it's easy because no one's stressed. But if it's a big road and it's all bunched up, that is full gas, peelers, whoever's on the front's riding over threshold, that's it. So, so I think wait, it's like when you... What's, what is, what's happened then? Is everyone just at like this superior level? Because like, is everyone like, is El Tractor, is he just like another another guy now? You know, like... Because I see these guys riding on the front doing like exactly what you say. And I'm thinking to myself, that guy, like just even leaning second time into Quaramont on that massive road from Aldenard there. And I mean, it looks like nothing exactly what you say. The bunch is from side to side of the road. And the guys on the front there, they're not getting the credit they deserve. They're, who knows what what's they're pushing? 450, 500 for that whole sector there, but they're still there yeah. afterwards. That's what surprises me. That's my day done. That's probably my whole <laughs> classic done if I did that turn. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like it's there. Uh, it is. It is one of those things that I think the the radios don't help. I'm ah, going to say why? because the information is that everyone needs to be there. So before it was a little bit of you need to have a bit of knowledge of when to be at the front and when not to be at the front. Mm. And you couldn't be at the front all the time. It was just not sustainable. But now the radios are, you boys, in 1.3K, we go, right, everyone needs to be in the front. So everyone is 
getting to the front at the exact same moment. So if you think about a neo pro who would have no idea where he was in Flanders, he wouldn't know what the Coptic here was versus the hollow egg versus the ha hook, all these sections. But now they know because there's a director in the car with Velavior and he's been able to communicate, mm. you know, this is what's coming up, this is what's going on. So this is why you've got guys that come straight in to the classics, for example. They're also freaks, but they go well straight away because there's so much information available to them. Like mm. they can – we used to do a roadbook recon not even that long ago, remember, Mitch, 2015, mm. 16, we would got a roadbook trying to – where now if you think about that with – with all the gravel stuff and you're on GPX, G, you know, you never get lost anywhere you are, you know? Um, and I think that's what it made a big difference. Like on the Garmin's, you know, I'm getting a countdown into crucial moments on my Garmin. So before I need to make the sprint, I've got a 300 meter countdown before I need to go right. So I'm going, okay, I got what? I get onto the big road, I got 3.2K to the next right hander. And I know that right hander, I have to be in the front. I'm just going to chill. So you just chill in the peloton, wait, wait, wait. It's like a full on sprint. And then you start getting closer. And then with 500 meters to go, it is just like full on out of the saddle, lead out sprint. And then you break last is the guy who goes into the corner. And you're just like, okay, uh, no, I'm not going to break, not going to break, not going to break, not going to break. And then someone does break. And then you're like, sweet, got him. But then now you're going into the corner with way too much speed. So has this been the the, the feel throughout, you know, you got Dupana, E3, um, Gen Wavelgum, Dwarsdor, the lead up races, were you starting to get a vibe before Flanders like, oh, these races are just, they're not really building anymore. They're already at crescendoing and they just sort of stayed at the peak or there was still a build, even though they started this epic stress level. Like you said, Paris-Nice was very stressful. The speed was super high. Previously, I was used to that drop-off like we spoke about. You went down to mm. Duas for Flandre and, and, you know, I used to say, God, this is a race for me. It was a little bit lower level. It was still quite a hard race. And we slowly built up to a Tour of Flanders. What exactly was it like same, now? Yeah. Was there a build or was it just – it was a build, but it started at nine and just sort of kept going through to, you know, 28. Well, I think the only thing is distance. It just goes into the blows. So, for example, Dwarsdor pretty much is the same hardness as Flanders, but it's 70K shorter. Mm. So I wouldn't say there's any difference. Like the speed and the pace and everything of Dwarsdor is the same as what it is in Flanders, but Flanders, you add 70K on top of that, so it just keeps going until the explosion's greater. Um, I think every race is pretty much as hard as the next. There is not a shift between, sure, Dupana is easier than um, Tour of Flanders. But in terms of the, the, uh, the not the pressure, but the, the intention of going to there to win the bike race is exactly the same at Dupana as it is Tour of Flanders. The only thing that heightens Tour of Flanders is the crowd, the media, this, that, etc. Like there's, I would say the Giro and the Tour are probably the same level of hardness, but the only thing that really probably defines the Giro to the Tour is the crowd, the pressure, the media, the, the hype around the Tour, which just gives that extra level of mental stress. I don't think it's physically harder, the Tour, than the Giro. But they're probably about the same. Maybe Giro is a little bit even harder in terms of physically. But the mental side of it is... Is a stress, the extra and element. I think that's what. What, yeah. what about what about on the data side of things? And like you've been all you've been in the bus. Obviously, you're not going to name names. 
Can you throw us around some numbers so people can, because like we're just throwing out this, oh, it's so hard and whatever. But for people to understand what our hard is versus their hard, you know, we need to get a bit of like data around this, you know, like what are some sort of, I don't know, some numbers that you've heard in the bus, you know, some TSS numbers or some, some, you know, hour powers. What are sort of guys go, oh my God, I can't believe that today. I did like, you know, 490 watts for three hours. Sure, that was a hard race. Well, we had a guy in Dwarsdorf, London, who had a great ride and um, yep. everyone will work out that. And um, he was in the breakaway and he got, I think it was a, a nearly a 400 normalized power for the entire race. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're talking a, a 350 average maybe for four and a half hours or something. And like... It's crazy. Like yesterday, and the I'd thing is, burnt. that's right. Yeah, that's what you said. Like it, it's, it's not like just not that that three, doing three fifty for that amount of time in any condition would be easy, but we're talking about racing conditions on off the pedals. You know. Yeah. Just, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's big. It's big numbers. I mean, that's also the thing is that numbers are such a thing these days because of the you know power meters and and I feel like. There was crazy numbers going around back then too. We just never really spoke about it. Um, but it's just a way for everyone to connect to the numbers. Like someone knows what 400 watts feels like, you know, Joe Blow back home. Mm. Um, but it does sort of, it does crack me a little bit because you come in and you speak numbers and mm. then, oh, you know, back back in 2017, I was fourth in E3 and I did less, I did more watts today than, than the than the, than back then, but like it's a completely different race. There's there's mm. no comparison. You're in the breakaway. You're in the peloton. You're there. You're there. Like it, it doesn't. Do make, you feel like? And really this is something race. I've spoken about. There is a bit of praise now or safety that guys who have a, a bad day or not the day that they thought, and they can justify their day with the amount of wattage they did. Yeah, but you know, and then you know the coach or the DS might go you know what, it must have been something else then because, you know, data-wise, he had a good day. It was like, well, maybe he just rode like an absolute idiot in the wind all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And the rode guy the who actually had yeah. no watts and finished up there should be, the you know, getting praise. I just feel like we're so fixated on it. And it is very interesting to understand that. Like, what about certain climbs? You know, can you remember off the top of your head, what sort of wattage will you put out, like, up a up one of the, you know, the pinnacle climbs out there, like a Quaramon or, a, you know, a... a part of strat or anything like that oh, you know? yeah like probably is it, it, it's sort of close to 450 to 500 for like length of the length of the the climb but it's where it comes in the race it's never as impressive as your two minute power back home or your one minute power back home because you arrive after 200k and then you've got to try and put out 450 to 500 for two or three minutes so it's but a continuous it's sort of like a, and you, re- so you know what like your recovery a- is? Following the wheel at the top of the Quaramont, just dropping back into threshold. Yep, quick yeah, threshold yeah, recovery yeah. before I hit the Pardisberg. Nice. And then do another two-minute at 500. And then I'll just drop straight into threshold recovery. Love that. <laughs> like I said to the guys on the bus, I said, how many times today did you do your very last pedal stroke you ever thought you'd do? <laughs> like you get over the top you're like this will be the last one i ever do and then all of a sudden you're doing one more and you're like and then you're onto the wheel and you you, you're trying to pedal with your chest your arms 
your leg, you've consumed your entire stem, you know, like, uh, yeah. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I did it. I did it about 15 times. Like, this is it. This is, this is 100% it. And then 50K later, you're still in the race. You're like, no, nah, no, nah, this time I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> well, let's just talk about Tour of Flanders, the Ronda. Just lastly, because we've got some, we've got a few mailbag questions this week and I, I want to get to them. But one thing that I really noticed on the TV and I'd love to talk to you about it is the atmosphere. It's something that I felt like, maybe because I really haven't noticed it too much as a rider because you weirdly get in that tunnel vision and you're just doing what you need to do and you can hear the crowd. But like you said, unless you dropped or unless you get in the early break, that's the only two times I think you can really experience the, the crowd. On TV this year, the crowd actually looked bigger than I have ever seen it before, honestly, and crazier. Like flares. I've never seen multiple flares. I'm not saying I'm promoting it, but I'm just saying one time you might see a random flare, but I mean, there was just just flares everywhere. And there was just like, there was way more tents than I've ever seen. There's just way more people on all the climbs, not just the Quaramon and like the Pinnacle climbs. Every climb had people, even like the Kortikir, which is like a nothing sort of climb, like you said. It was just like packed, like three deep. Was it actually, am I imagining it, or was the atmosphere unbelievable this year? No, it was, it was unbelievable. Um, from kilometre zero onwards, we, you know, normally you can piss on the bike, but there was not a single piece of road that you could find a moment to do a piss. So you actually had to just, there was like a couple of hundred metres and the entire bunch would stop to climb out the mm. toilet because there was just no moment to stop to see anyone. But every climb this year, they'd set up uh, like VIP situation. And I don't, I don't know if I can remember ever seeing it, but on the Paddestrat, they did this like big like awning out into the hill and it was this big, big marquee on top of the Paddestrat. And like there was always a good cl- uh, crowd on the Paddestrat, but there was never VIP like there was the Quaramon. But the choir, and then like every single climb pretty much had their own VIP tent. And uh, it was such a beautiful day as well. Like it was fresh, but the day was clear. It was bluebird. But um, when you rolled up the Quaramont, like it was just insane. Like the road was wet with beer. Like it wasn't raining yet, but there was just like the first set of cobbles guys were just yelling so much. Their beer was just coming up and out of their cup onto the cobbles. And the first bit was all wet. And I was like, as it rained, it was like, oh, and then you could smell it. It's just this, you know, like they were hopping into it early too because, you know, we started at 10 o'clock in the morning and by the time we got to the Quaramont, it's pretty early still, yeah. first time, and it was uh, and it was kicking off. So there'd be some sore heads. But, no, it was, it was one of the best crowds I've ever seen. Uh, I think maybe missing out on it for two years just made you realise how special it is too. You know, and mm. like, you know, that was something that uh, that was cool. All right, we could talk about classics all day, but these questions that we've got coming are about classics. Well, most of them anyway. So let's get into the mailbag derbs. Um, all right. I'll just start reading them out, I guess, and you can answer them, or I can help you answer them, or I don't know. Let's just see how we go. Um, <laughs> see how much you remember being away for about six months. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old now, mate. I probably can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, bloody hell. Did you wheel you in for the podcast, did you? I love this question. Boone there, done that. Is there an end of classics pisser? 
or is it back to training next races? Right, this is a perfect question for us, isn't it, Derbs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, well, you, yeah, well I'll, I'll go. Yeah. Uh, well, there wasn't one, so we had to create one, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if every other team does it, but uh, when... Well, the story is we'll tell the audience. We know the story. But when we were at the Classics, um, we would spend a month-long period. And you sort of feel like you're in the trenches together with the crew, you know, and mm. the staff and riders as well. It's a long time, one month up, generally some bad weather. Um, and Roubaix finishes and it's sort of this ending point. But like I said, there's a huge just evacuation, you know, the day of, Paris Bay, everyone, staff's going here, rides going there, everyone's at the airport, boom, you're gone. And then you're like, this huge come down, you yeah. just feel like, well, that was just upsetting, wasn't it? Like, no one even got to have a, a relaxed moment of like, even if it was good or bad, just to go, oh, you know, thanks for the month, we really appreciate all the work, because the staff works so hard for us. Anyway, Cause you wait, and I... Just, could yeah, before yeah. that, because there's also like a bit of talk about it too. Oh, yeah, we, you know, there's a bit, oh, we should do something after this. Oh, how great is it going to be when all this is over? You know, you're talking about like the hardest, worst thing in the world. When we get through this, we're going to just, you know, have a great drink and this real camaraderie feel. <laughs> and then finally it gets closer to the day and ultimately the end of the race, everyone's like, yeah, I'm just going to get out of here. See you, mate. You know, yeah, I hate you. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so we thought. Oh, so yeah, we went, yeah, so we thought it would be a good idea to, book a like make a dinner make something special regardless what it was we would everyone would get their flight out monday morning rather than sunday night and yeah we originally we booked a dinner we sort of i think we after a few years we sort of uh streamlined the process you know the first year we did uh, a, a restaurant in belgium and uh in in ghent yeah. it was <laughs> that was good fun. Yeah, uh, in Belgium, yeah, in in, uh, in Ghent, and uh, that was really good fun. Um, and yeah, we we did we did have a good time. Um, but then I think now we've honed it down to getting a friteur or a frit truck and a chicken truck, and we park it in the car park of our hotel, and we just put some tunes on the hotel. Everyone has beers because the staff were actually. They need to pack up and actually drive back to Italy on the Monday morning. So they've actually got a big day. They don't want to rock up with a huge hangover. Um, so they everyone can just go to bed when they want. So that's still it's still special because it's not necessarily about the place. It's about the people and enjoying the in the week. But um, yeah, there's been been some good parties after after Rube. There has it's necessary, like you said. It's aside from the you know the drinking and you know letting your hair down that sort of thing. It it is a Two points, I think. One, not flying after such an epic race. You probably shouldn't just be ruining yourself on on booze, as you know we've spoken about in previous podcasts. But two, it's that time <laughs> yeah. where you get to hang out with your teammates, where the pressure's off for a night, um, which is not often. You know, it, it is a funny thing. You might think, yeah, you hang out with them all year and whatever, but there's always a little bit of pressure on about some race or something. Once the big once the big goal's been done, it's nice to be able to have that beer. But um, we've got the next well, question. The one was yeah. uh, sorry. One funny one was when uh, well, not funny because it was actually terrible for you. But the year Heyman won, we we'd already it's like we'd already planned the winning party. Like it was sort <laughs> of a it's 
like we were not expected to win. You crashed. You actually did miss it, which was we were all concerned about where you were at. But at that point, it was like we've won. And we're like, well, yeah, actually, we've just pre-prepared this <laughs> yeah. one earlier. If you just want to walk this way and this is our, you know, our celebratory party ready to go. Um, and Maddie, I remember Maddie was like, he was surprised. Because I think it was one of the first years we did the party. And he's like, oh, well, like what are we going to do tonight? I'm like, well, we've already organized sorted, it. You know? yeah. <laughs> Me and Mitch already organized it. Um, so that worked out quite well. I've got a really interesting question here from Moshman. Is the Classics Rider dead? Um, I think that's a really good question because we, we spoke about this a little bit in the last little, you know, the speed of the Peloton, the watts, the, you know, the radio. Something really special about what we sort of cottoned on to early in our career was, you know, to be good at the Classics, you have to go and live in Belgium and understand what the Belgies, the Belgian riders why they're so good at these races. And it's not just about being a strong rider. It's about knowing the roads. And when I say that, knowing little intricate things about the roads, not knowing the climb, you know, riding on the actual climb. That's actually the easy part. It's knowing how you approach the climb, knowing where you are at any point of the race so you know where to move. Like you said, have a toilet break, have something to eat, go back to a car. All those little intricate things added in, getting used to the weather, being in the cold environment, so these classics riders, once upon a time, there were guys who had their whole career or slash contracts off this spring classics period. And they sort of hibernated for the rest of the year. You know, the names like Van Pedigam, you know, Leif Hoster, these guys. Devolder. Stein Devolder. He did, he did try the tour at one point, but he went, you know what, I think I like just doing the classics for, you know, two weeks a year. Um, and they sort of hibernated around and they were the classics gods and they sort of started you first started getting to themselves in shape sort of towards the end of the year i think they are dead i don't know anyone that can do that anymore and survive off that because teams need way more from you yeah i'd agree i'd agree there was always that you know that person who was a classic rider would generally ride last wheel with their hands on the on the tops of every at every other race (laughs) you know like We'd always we'd always joke about the classic rider was always he he he'd hit the front for the for the um, springtime and then every other race he was in he was at the back riding with his hands on the tops you know at the waiting, back of the peloton you know waiting for the safe time to get himself into the finish swing <laughs> exactly. off yeah uh, job done waiting saving it for the classics huh but no no hundred percent they're dead because also the Tour de France champion is lining up at uh, Tour of Flanders and nearly winning in his first time out. So it's not the it's it's, it's not the same. Um, the if you're good if you're a good rider, you're a good rider at all classics now, or all races, and it's just not it's just not accepted by in in cycling anymore to be just uh, you have to be good all year round. Mm. That's about it. So leader Lucas sent us in a technical question. What are the special training sessions during recon week before the classics? You're doing laps, you're doing efforts, you're doing climbs what about for you, Derbs? You're probably going to know a bit better than me now. I haven't been up there for a while. Um, <laughs> what's it better, you know, for you? Is it more about doing your specific training, like in terms of what you know is good for you, or is it more about feeling the environment and doing natural efforts, as I like to call them? So just riding a climb from bottom to top, regardless of the time. What do you like to do in those weeks before? Do you like 
feeling the the roads and doing your efforts on the roads to the parkour or do you like sticking to what you know i'm going to do my three minute effort regardless if i finish you know 50 meters before the top of the quaramont i'm just going to get off and walk up the last bit because that's the end of my effort or what's what's your technique <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I I'm just on, on. I go on the feel of the of the climbs. Like I might hit, you might say, hit two or three climbs hard or two or three sections hard. Um, yeah, it's much more realistic. Uh, gives you much better feeling. Um, it's all about the recon. Um, it's all about reconnaissance. is is super key up there uh, to know to know everything to know the roads. And we've got a lot of young guys in our team now, um, which is exciting. It's early days, you and me, up there trying to learn the roads. So we do a lot of recon. Matt Hames in the car. You know, we, we have that uh, element. Of even, if we, even if we don't do a solid recon, we'll have like time at the hotel where we've spent a lot of time on, uh, on VeloViewer or watching the race from the year before and going over all that sort of stuff. So the days before are definitely used uh for for research a lot of research to make sure you know what you're doing because it is so important and pretty much used for recovery like there's you know you don't actually do that much training up there you know you do one really big hit out on a friday one really big hit out on a on a sunday and then a wednesday and a friday and a sunday like you really don't do any training really up there you just do one and a half hour recovery rides in between because they're so difficult, these races, that you have to go in so fresh. Um, you don't really do too much training. It's something that I find still so funny now to think about because I'm actually really starting to get closer to the other side now and I'm understanding that what I used to think was fresh is deeply fatiguing right now for me, deeply. <laughs> So I just, I love that idea. You You're know? already training. Yeah, like a 15-hour week. So it's like, we're just going to rest up, you know. Yeah. You're like, 15 hours, I'm broken. I always remember thinking like, yeah, we'll just do it. we just had, you know, whatever it was, get wavable or something. We'll just do like a, a light sort of three hours of the coffee shop now. I'm happy if I can get a three-hour ride in now. <laughs> <laughs> like two days out, I ran into Jens Kukalier at the coffee shop from uh, from Flanders. And you know how Kooks, Kukalier, they always love to do kilometers. And he's just like, I'm like, oh, yeah, what'd you get up to today? He was in Ghent. And you know where EF stay? They stay mm. ages from Ghent. In Lockeren, yeah. And he's, yeah, I said, oh, so what are you up to today? Said, oh, yeah, just two hours motor pace this morning and then just rode here for coffee and then I'm going to go back. And I'm like, we can do like four hours or something. <laughs> he's like, yeah, just ride the legs in a little bit. You're like, you've got seven hours tomorrow. <laughs> oh, this is the day before the race. <laughs> yeah, day before. Oh, my gosh. All right, next question from Zachary. Single thing that could win or lose you the race? I don't know what race he's talking about, but let's just talk about Flanders. Um, well, you have to have the legs to win, but I'd say like nutrition will definitely lose you the race in such a long race. Like regardless if you are the strongest person in the race, if you get that wrong over a six, seven hour race, it doesn't matter who you are, you, you just stop. So that's why I always find those those top 10 guys in the classics in this year, like they're also super intelligent bike racers. One, they know how to ride their bike, but two, they also know how to do their nutrition right because there's no way they can be stepping out last time Quaramont with, with gas 
just because they're genetic freaks. They, if mm. they've got no fuel, if there's no fuel in the car, it doesn't matter if you're a Ferrari or not, the Ferrari won't go. So they are they are intelligent about getting that in and, and that is something that's really really been a much more of a focus probably the last four or five years is that really getting that carbohydrates in um, and that is that is just your rocket fuel. So I'd say that's the one thing that will that would actually win or lose you the race. It's crazy to think back the years that what we did on so underfueled and how how much we pushed the bodies back then. But um, mm. that was another time. Um, let's move into a few tech questions. Um, Rob Berry, is there any new tech for the classics this year? You know, is there anything you've noticed that's sort of a bit different, bit newer? You know, me not being there, I can't really comment on that. But you guys using what's the general feel? Is everyone everyone using the same sort of with tire because as I was sort of leaving, well, last year, one thing I noticed in the last few years is that tyre width was going up. You know, you would never ride a 30 in a Flanders race, you, you know, you, or even you, 28 would be very big for a Flanders and sort of cobbles race. But that was happening at the end. You know, 30s were pretty common even in the Flanders races. Um, has that gone up or what? any other tech things you've noticed that you were like, oh, I don't know what that does, but that's new. Uh, yeah, I, I think probably the same lines as you were saying, 30s. Are pretty common now. We're still on 28s, but there's a lot of teams on 30s. I'd say about more than half the bunch are on tubeless now. Like they're pretty much most people are opting to go to tubeless, um, which are opting to be faster. So you're running really, really low pressures, uh, 30 mil tires. Um, I did see Bahrain playing around with a 32 for Roubaix, which is like huge mm. if you think about it. Um, I've actually got the 32s that EF were testing for Roubaix. I've been riding them back here. Um, and weirdly, weirdly they, they don't feel so much bigger. I think we're just ultimately getting used to that size in our eye, if that makes sense. Yeah, when you true. look down, true. that's just sort of what you're looking you're used to seeing. And when I was on 32, I was like, oh, these are 32s. I'm used to it now. Anyway. Yep. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the biggest tech. Um, that's changed. There's nothing much more difference with the bikes, or oh well, I guess 12 speed now. A lot of lot of people have 12 speeds, so you can actually run. You know, I would normally run maybe a 38 to get up the Koppenberg, where now you can just run your standard 39, 54 chainring because mm. you've got 11, 30 mm. on the back. Um, so you really just have to keep. You can keep that pretty much the same all year round now because there's just so many options yeah. with the 12 speed. Um, so yeah, that's another thing that a lot of guys are just you pretty much year round will just be thirty nine fifty four and that's it, and because you've just got all so the selections at yeah. the back, yeah. Russ, we actually got a couple questions around this. Russ said, "What is better, double bar tape or good gloves?" Um, and I don't know about you, Durs, but I was never all about double bar tape for padding. For me, that was just all about grip feel and gloves was never really about absorbing um you know vibration sure. either it was you know no gloves or gloves for me gloves was all about sort of grip and actual um you know palm sweat and all that sort of feel on my bars so for me neither of those were about um you know absorption it was all about comfort in my hand how it felt on the bars I guess absorption, I just sort of went, oh, well, it never really bothered me that much. What's your opinion on either of those? I always thought absorption was like the bars was, was important, but 
I started once I realized it was all about the tires, <laughs> you know. Uh, and when I ran tubeless in Roubaix last year, I ran a full carbon one piece aero handlebar and didn't get a single blister because, mm. in the end, it really wasn't about the the bar in the end it was about the tire and the tire was taking all the absorption of the of the of the road so yeah i, I was like i was thinking probably like oh, the lines of the question here was like oh, we'll double wrap we'll put gloves on to make an absorption really it's all about the tire pressure i feel so um yeah i i i, I use double wrap but same for you same for feeling gloves me it's more for safety i hate wearing gloves but if you crash and you come down you take a bit of your palm off. It's not very fun. So gloves normally just for safety for me. Tony, this is a back on, on the back of that question. What's the bike that you, to Luke specifically, what's the bike that you most enjoyed on the cobbles? My favorite bike on the cobbles I've ridden. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I actually really enjoyed the the Scott Foil back in the day. Mm. The one Hamer one on. We had a good set of tires on that. It was aero enough. But the rear end actually got had a bit of give in it, so you could actually get a little bit of absorption there. Um, and Roubaix is quite flat, or it is flat, so you need that aerodynamic aid. Yeah, probably the Scott Foil, the second second edition was was really good. Alexander, what do you like the most? Or it should be what do you least like the most? Going over the cobble sectors or over the climbs? What do you like the most? He said, going over the cobble sectors or going over the climbs? I like less. No, what do you like the most? What I like the most, <laughs> yeah, like probably over the cobble sectors, yeah. The flat the cobble climb, sectors no. or the... <laughs> the flat ones, yeah. <laughs> the downhill ones. Yeah, no, definitely not. <laughs> this is a good one. One ideally, cobbles recovery or favorite way to recover after a race that completely wrecks you. Derbs, you're pretty good <laughs> at recover, actually. You're pretty good at treating yourself. What's your recovery process? Uh, I'm a big fan... Well, sleep is key if I'm running through my um, recovery process. Um, post this race, so say now, I'll return home. I'll try and get a, catch up on some sleep I've missed out. So nap in the day, get to bed early tonight. Um, good nutrition. So and what I mean by that is like you really want to like try and clean the body after all the calories and stuff that you took on yesterday was just you know i must have taken eight gels and all this crap so your stomach's all over the place and um, you're dehydrated and your muscles are broken so like healthy fruit juices salad just things to really just clean lots and lots of water um and then i like to move the body a little bit with a bit of a sweat so maybe a walk or an easy one hour ride and then um and then go and do a do like a 20-minute sauna or something like that, like 15-minute sauna, just to sort of get get all the crap out of your body from the days before. How fast are you walking if, you, if you're getting a sweat up? You're really sort of out there power walking, you know, with a, <laughs> no, no, no. wrapping yourself in a cling wrap? It's more out in the sun. Oh, right. No, no, the sauna is more for the sweat. Um, oh, right, but sorry. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. It's just time as well. Like, you, you know, you spend that day giving back to yourself a bit um makes a big difference in the in the in the days coming up but two uh, you know two or three days i'll start to feel a bit better after after sunday so just got to give yourself a bit of time mm. uh we've got a question here i can't quite pronounce his name sam bowerly i think it is who was your favorite roommate 
of the 2020 Classics campaign. 2020. 2022, sorry. Oh, yeah. It's my roommate now. Uh, Luke is really good. Luke and Mezjek. Yeah. <laughs> He's got so much coffee. So good. Yeah. That's from your teammate, Sam Bewley. Um, he just wanted to test it out, test the waters out. Who you're going to throw under the bus there, but you didn't. You did a good job, mate. Well done. Well, I have room with Sam as well, so I didn't give Sam the heads up, but Sam doesn't give me free gifts, so I'm just throwing <laughs> that back to Sam if he listens. If he brings me some some free gifts, and he's the best roommate, you know? And our last question here from Kate. The Tour, de, tour Down Under, TDU is back. What does it mean to Aussie cyclists hearing that news? Oh, it's great. It's mm. fantastic. It is really good. I mean, we never get to race in front of Aussie crowd and Tour Down Under, you know how special that is. You've done it a couple of times. It's just a great race. Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to back there and hopefully you can pop over the drive over and have a beer with me, you know. i got a question actually, Joe, about Tour Down Under. Do you think that's played an effect on the classics in such a way? You know, it's so important now with car position um, and Tour Down Under weirdly had a bit of a role in that. Teams could focus on that, one, for points, but two, get their car position for the classics. Um, without that race mm. there now, it's one less UCI or World Tour race, one less chance to move yourself up for the classics, which can be detrimental for teams in the classics. As you spoke about, it's so hectic. You know, if you if you can get back from a puncher, you're a freak. Um, but if you, most of the time, if you have a problem or a puncher, um, your race is pretty much done. Do you have, what's your thought about that? Without you know, not just the physical side of it, but actually the the technical side of it from a team's point of view. Yeah, I, I've never really thought about that, but it makes a good point because at Flanders we had car nine, but I think the only thing that might debunk that is that I think it's on the the rider. Mm. So it's the best G because we've been having car twenty two most of the time until Matthews arrived at the classics and then we got car nine because he's quite high in the world tour. So I actually don't know the two down the thing would work. I think it used to be off team. Mm. It was like whatever your team is, you get that car, but now it's actually based off the highest place rider in that race. So if Matthews wasn't there, we'd be car 21. But if Matthews was there, we were car nine. So, yeah, it would. Maybe in the past it would, but I don't think unless a guy who's the favourite for two out of under is our favourite for Flanders, Ronda van Vlaanderen, hmm. uh, which is possible. But um, I think it's off the rider. Hmm. Well, mate, you've, uh, you've given us a lot of your time today on one of those beautiful – um, sacred recovery days actually um, so thanks a lot and you've got Amstel Gold Race coming up this week I'm brewing up Talking Love 3.0 for the coming week so get yourself 3.0. strap right. yourself in for that mate I've got some cracking questions in there for you you're the man who has to talk test out Talking Love I couldn't test it out with anyone else so Get yourself ready for that. When you're in Amstel this weekend, you'll just be thinking what it could be. That'll get you through Amstel. <laughs> and then, of course, through Bay. Mate, thanks for being on the pod. Most of all, great to catch up with you. And hearing the classics. I love hearing the classics from the other side. It sounds beautiful. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me on. I'll speak to you next week.
there you go everyone thank you for sending in all your questions i hope we got through some of them for you i hope that was a little bit insightful for you as we come up to the last few races amsoul gold race and paru bay before they go into the arden classics maybe now you've got a little bit more of an insight when you're watching these races what's going on why the bunch is doing what it is doing and when it's bunched up it's actually going really fast I thought Durbo was great, as always. I want to say a big thanks, of course, to Rafa, who are making this podcast happen. This wouldn't be happening without them. I'm really appreciative, and I'm loving working with them, as you guys already know. Of course, Lara behind the scenes, and Will Jones, who are putting this episode together as well. And guys, you for listening too. We'll be back again next week with a Talking Luft, Luke Durbridge 3.0. So until then, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.